Well, please open your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 71. Psalm 71. Psalm 71. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come. You have given commandment to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the grasp of the wrongdoer and ruthless man. For you are my hope. O Lord God, you are my confidence from my youth. By you I have been sustained from my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have become a marvel to many, for you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all day long. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails, for my enemies have spoken against me. And those who watch for my life have consulted together, saying, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is no one to deliver. O God, do not be far from me. O my God, hasten to my help. Let those who are adversaries of my soul be ashamed and consumed. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor who seek to injure me. But as for me, I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and of your salvation all day long. For I do not know the sum of them. I will come with the mighty deeds of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness, yours alone. O oh God, you have taught me from my youth, and I still declare your wondrous deeds. And even when I am old and gray, O oh God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are to come. For your righteousness, O oh God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things, O oh God, who is like you? You who have shown me many troubles and distresses will revive me again and will bring me up again from the depths of the earth. May you increase my greatness and turn to comfort me. I will also praise you with a harp, even your truth, O oh my God. To you I will sing praises with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you and my soul which you have redeemed. My tongue also will utter your righteousness all day long, 
for they are ashamed, for they are humiliated who seek my hurt. Amen. Pray with me this morning. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this psalm. And Father, like the psalmist of old, we too take refuge in you. Father, you are our rock of habitation that we continually come to. You are our rock and our fortress. You are our deliverer, our redeemer, our savior. You are our hope. You are our confidence from our youth all the way until our old age. You are the one who sustains us from birth. You are the one who gives us everything that we have. Father, our mouth is filled with your praise, with your glory all the day long. Father, as we gather on this Lord's Day, we celebrate once again that we are redeemed in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have taken all of our sins and that you laid them upon your own Son and that you punished him in our place and that his death was a sufficient payment for our sins and that not only has he died and been buried, he is alive. He is risen. He is at your right hand. And you have given to your son all authority in earth and in heaven. And Father, it is to Christ that we bow this morning. And we confess him as the Lord of the universe. Father, we thank you that because of Christ... We have hope for a good future. We have the assurance of your love, of your faithfulness. We have the assurance that we are accepted in the beloved by your grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Father, we do not boast in ourselves. We do not boast in anything that we do. We boast solely in the cross and in the great work of Christ's redemption. Father, I pray that as we turn to your word shortly, I pray that you would give comfort to your people. As we live in a fallen world and as we are given to suffering and even depression, I pray that you would fill your people with your hope, Father, we have nowhere else to go. We run to you and we are safe in your presence. We thank you that you hear us. We thank you that you will never forsake us. We thank you that you are our shepherd and that you guide us all the way until death and that at that very moment of death, when we take our final breath, you will receive us 
into your presence in glory. We thank you for these things, and we pray them all in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Martin Luther was a man given to depression. And on one particular occasion, he underwent a bout of depression that he could not seem to overcome. When his wife Katie saw that he was unaffected by any word of encouragement, she decided to take a rather creative approach and do something that just might lift him out of his pit of despair. She decided to dress in black morning clothes. She dressed as if someone had died and that she was mourning. When Luther noticed her clothes, he asked her, who died? God, she replied. Luther rebuked her, what do you mean God is dead? God cannot die? Well, she replied, the way you've been acting, I was sure he had. What a rebuke. I share this story with you for two reasons. Number one, to remind you once again that depression is a common struggle among the people of God. And then number two, as long as God is not dead, there is hope. There is hope. At this point in our study, we are considering our third and final point, our third and final major point, Roman numeral three on your bulletin, the remedy for spiritual depression. And under this heading, we are developing a number of subpoints, the first two of which we have already seen. We began with letter A, the meaning of Christian hope, and we have learned that Christian hope is not wishful thinking. It is not merely a wish for something good in the future. Rather, it is a confident expectation. It is the absolute certainty for something good in the future. We have also looked at letter B, the foundation of Christian hope, and we have learned that the basis of all Christian hope is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus died for all of our sins and for all of our shame and for all of our guilt in order to give us peace and acceptance with the Holy God is the very grounds, it is the very foundation of our Christian hope. Because of Christ and his great work of redemption, you have hope. And as we saw last time, there are two broad aspects of our hope in Christ. Number one, there is the hope of future glory. We saw that life is hard, it is filled with suffering, but glory is coming, which will bring an end to all suffering, including depression. And then secondly, there is the hope of present good. Even in your suffering, God does all things for his glory and for your good. These are promises from God who cannot lie. And so you have the absolute certainty of these things. That brings us now to our next subpoint, letter C, the cultivation of Christian hope. As Christians, we understand theologically that we have hope in Christ. 
And we understand that the gospel is the ultimate remedy to our spiritual depression. But our experiential knowledge of Christian hope tends to wax and wane throughout the course of life. It comes and it goes, it ebbs and it flows. And therefore, it is imperative that we know how to cultivate Christian hope in our lives so that we might live with the full assurance of our hope in Christ. This is what we will focus on in the remainder of the series. There are many things to be said on this particular point, and so it will take us several messages to complete. So the first way to cultivate Christian hope is, number one, distrust yourself. Distrust yourself. When I talk about distrusting yourself, this goes directly against the tide of modern-day thinking. The culture tells you to follow your heart. This past week, I came across a number of quotes. Let me give you two of them. If you don't follow your heart, you might spend the rest of your life wishing you had. Another one says this, you just listen to your heart. That is your only teacher. The culture also tells you to believe in yourself, to believe in yourself. Recently, I saw a craft from a children's Sunday school class at a different church, and on the craft, it said, believe in yourself. And so this kind of thinking is pervasive, not only in our culture, but even in the church. But telling someone to believe in yourself is perhaps the worst advice that someone could ever give. Why? Because it is the very opposite of what the Bible teaches. In Proverbs 28 and 26, it says this, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. The scripture could not be more clear on this particular point. If you follow your heart and if you believe in yourself as the culture tells you to do, the Bible says you are a fool. You are a fool. Now why is that? Why is the Bible so direct on this issue? Let me tell you why. Because your heart is untrustworthy. Your heart is untrustworthy. Your heart, listen carefully, your heart will lie to you. It will lie to you. As you know, we hear a lot these days about fake news. And if you were to do a survey on what people think the greatest source of fake news is, they would say something like this. It comes from the media. It comes from politicians. But the greatest source of fake news is not CNN. It is not the New York Times. Listen carefully. It is your own heart. It is your own heart. 
the most destructive source of fake news in your life by far is your own heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, what does it say about the heart? The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? That is the testimony of God about the condition of man as a fallen creature. The culture further says you need to discover your potential. And with that statement, I agree. It is critical that you discover your potential for sin. This is essential. Even as a Christian, you must understand what your own heart is capable of doing. Even as a believer, it is vital for your spiritual well-being that you recognize and come to grips with the harsh reality that your heart is deceitful, that it will lie to you, that it is not trustworthy. Now, with that in view, there is an important relationship between what I am saying and the deceitfulness of your heart and how it relates to depression. A very critical relationship. How do these two things relate to one another? Let me explain. In times and seasons of depression, we are often besieged with dark thoughts and with dark emotions that are not rooted in the truth. They are lies, they are deceitful, they are not trustworthy. Your own thoughts and your own emotions can lie to you about God. They can lie to you about yourself. They can lie to you about your circumstances. They can lie to you about your future. They can lie to you about anything. And the result is the lies of your own heart can lead you into the pit of despair and depression. And so at this point, it is vital to recognize that your own thoughts and your own feelings do not define reality. Just because you think something is true doesn't mean that it's true. Just because you feel that something is true doesn't mean that it's true. What defines reality is God and his word. God is the creator of reality. And so in order to cultivate Christian hope, you must develop a healthy distrust, a healthy distrust of your own heart, of your own deceitful thoughts and emotions. Now, as we talk about depression and hope, we are talking about things that involve human emotion. And so I want to take a few moments and develop what I'm calling a brief theology of emotion. And this is on your bulletin insert. We have three brief points on a consideration of a theology of emotion. Point number one, our emotions and creation. God is an emotive being. That is to say that God himself has emotions. 
For example, God is jealous. That is an emotion. God rejoices. That is an emotion. And as creatures made in his image, God has made us to be emotional beings. We have emotions because God made us that way. We are not merely intellectual creatures. We are also emotional creatures by God's good and wise design. Number two, our emotions and the fall. Very critical. Because of the fall... Our emotions are disordered. They are disordered. When we talk about total depravity, by that we we mean that sin has radically affected our entire human constitution, our bodies, our minds, our wills, and our emotions. Sin has ravaged our entire being. And what this radical depravity has done is to disrupt the proper functioning of your emotions and my emotions. We now experience sinful and ungodly emotions because of the reality of being fallen creatures. And then number three, our emotions and redemption. And this is good news. In redemption, our emotions are reclaimed, and they begin the process of renewal in the image of God. Therefore, beloved, listen carefully. Your emotions need to be sanctified, and they need to be brought under the authority of the Word of God. Let me say that again. Your emotions They need to be sanctified, and they need to be brought under the authority of the Word of God. If you will look at the quotes from Martin Lloyd-Jones on the bulletin, very insightful on human emotion, he writes, Our feelings are always seeking to control us. Is that not true? It's my own experience. Our feelings are always seeking to control us. And unless we realize this, they will undoubtedly do so. That is what we mean when we talk about moods and moodiness. The mood seems to descend upon us. We do not want it, but there it is. Now the danger is to allow it to control and grip us. We wake up in a bad mood in the morning, and the tendency is to go on like that throughout the day and to remain like that until something happens to put us right. Can I get a witness? (laughs) The next quote from Lloyd-Jones, he continues, Avoid the mistake of concentrating overmuch upon your feelings. Above all, avoid the terrible error of making them central. Feelings are never meant to take the first place. They are never meant to be central. If you put them there, you are of necessity doomed to be unhappy because you are not following the order that God himself has ordained. And then there's one more quote from Lloyd-Jones on the back of your bulletin. And he says this, again, very insightful, the whole danger is that when the mood comes upon us, we allow it to dominate us, and we are defeated and depressed. He's right. And so what is the point? 
The point is this, if you live by your emotions without sanctifying them and without submitting them under the authority of the word of God, they are disordered and they will lead you to depression. They will lead you to the pit of despair. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 3. As you know, when we're done with this series on depression and the hope of God, we will begin our exposition of Ecclesiastes. And so this is a little preview, if you will. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 3. This will give you some practice on finding it. If you can find the book of Proverbs, it is the book directly after it. Just to give you a little help. Now, let me warn you, Ecclesiastes 9.3 is probably not anyone's life verse in this room. It is not a very encouraging verse at all, but it is true. And we need to hear what it says. Ecclesiastes 9.3, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, here's our key part, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, And insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. That's depressing. You might say, well, I thought you were supposed to be giving us hope. It may be depressing, but it's true. Our hearts are full of evil. And insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. And then they die. Again, beloved, your heart, your thoughts, your feelings, they will betray you. You have disordered hearts. Wayne Mack, in his book on depression, it's a very helpful book. He gives a helpful diagram on the development of depression. You can see it on your bulletin insert. There are three parts. You can see event plus interpretation equals response. This is one way that depression can develop in your life. It is not the only way, but it is one way. It is a common way. And so first of all, there is an outside event. Let me give you a simple example that perhaps every one of us have experienced at one time or another. A person doesn't say hello to you at church. Has that ever happened to you? That is an outside event. A person does not say hello to you at church. And then comes your interpretation of that event. What is your interpretation of that event? That person must not like me. That person must be angry with me. Something along those lines. And then comes the sinful response, which is what? Self-pity, anger, depression. These sinful emotions can lead to depression. Now, at this point, we must be very, very careful to make a distinction. A distinction between those occasions which can tempt us to depression and the actual causes of our depression. Look at the quote from Wayne Mack. He makes this distinction. 
He says, depression is caused by a person's response to an event in their life, not the event itself. And so if somebody doesn't say hello to you at church, you can't say, that is what makes me depressed. What makes you depressed is your sinful response to that event. And so oftentimes we allow our sinful thoughts and our sinful emotions to control us. And when we do, they can lead us into depression. There are so many ways that this could happen. As a Christian, you might think or feel that God doesn't love you. I have thought that before. As a Christian, you might think or feel that God can't or that he won't forgive you. Perhaps you've done something terrible in your life as a believer, and you might live with the shame and the guilt of that, and you might think that God can never forgive you of that. You might think or feel that God is against you. You might think or feel that God is not good. Perhaps you are suffering something, and you might think God is not good. You might think or feel that God doesn't care about you. You might think or feel that your life has no meaning, that you have no purpose for living. You might think or feel that you are all alone. Your heart might tell you that your situation in life is hopeless. You have no future. And the thoughts and the feelings of your heart, listen, they can be convincing. They can be very persuasive. Look at the quote from John Piper. It is tremendous. He says, our dark certainties are not sureties. While we have the light, let us cultivate distrust of the certainties of despair. You might need to read that again this afternoon to understand what he is saying. What he is saying is that your dark thoughts and your dark feelings of despair, they may feel certain. You may be convinced and persuaded that this is how it is. But you must overcome them by developing a healthy distrust of yourself, of your own heart, of your own thoughts, and of your own emotions. And so when your thoughts and your feelings tell you that there is no hope for you in your life, don't believe it because it is a lie. It is fake news. Well, this leads naturally to our second way of cultivating hope. Number two in our list, talk to yourself. And no, that is not a typo. I mean to say talk to yourself. Let's turn to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. I am so thankful that Psalm 42 is in the Bible because it is such a corrective to our tendency to despair. 
We have referenced this psalm a few times already in this series. You may remember that the psalmist is going through a season of pain and despair. Look at verse 3. He writes, My tears have been my food day and night. And then in verse 6, Oh, my God, my soul is in despair within me. And so here is the psalmist experiencing the darkness of despair and depression. Now look at verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Stop there. Let me ask you some questions. Grammatically speaking, what kind of statements are those in verse 5? It's not a trick question. They're questions. They are questions. Who is asking the questions? Well, that's obvious. It's the psalmist. Now, to whom does the psalmist ask his questions? Himself. Himself. Charles Spurgeon says, as though he were two men, the psalmist talks to himself. He's talking to himself. But he is not merely talking to himself, he is questioning himself. And he is not merely questioning himself, he is rebuking himself. He says to himself, what are you doing? Why are you thinking this way? The Puritan Richard Sibbs wrote an entire book on Psalm 42 and verse 5. It is 175 pages long on one verse. And he titled it this, The Soul's Conflict with Itself. What a great title. The Soul's Conflict with Itself. After questioning himself, what does the psalmist do next? In verse 5, he gives himself a command. He says, hope in God. He instructs himself, he exhorts himself to hope in God. Again, he is talking to himself. He does the same thing again down in verse 11. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. And then as you go to Psalm 43, the next psalm, In verse 5, we have the same pattern. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God. Now listen very carefully to what I say. Here is what the psalmist is doing. He is preaching to himself. He is preaching to himself. Martin Lloyd-Jones again Very helpful counsel. He says, I say that we must talk to ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to talk to us. That is so helpful. And so when dark thoughts and dark emotions overcome you like a dreadful storm, you must not listen to their lies. Instead, you must speak the truth to your own soul. 
and talk yourself out of the pit of despair. When your dark thoughts and your emotions tell you that there is no hope, in that moment you tell yourself, self, hope in God. Hope in God. Hope in God. The way out of despair is by looking up to God in hope and preaching hope to your own soul. Listen, this, there's nothing exceptional about this. This is the normal Christian life. This is normal. We must fight for hope by preaching the hope of God to our own souls. This is normal. This is how we live. This is how we are to overcome our own despair. In your suffering, it is easy to lose perspective of who God is and then to become despairing. Therefore, you have to remind yourself of who God is. As we see in Psalm 42 and verse 6, O oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you. From the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mitzar, you have to remember God because that is what you have forgotten in your despair. You have forgotten God. To live in despair is a form of practical atheism, it is to live as if God has died. And if God has died, go ahead and put on the black morning clothes and live miserably. But the truth is, of course, that he is alive forevermore. And therefore, tell yourself to hope in God. Hope in God. And so I ask you, who is God to you as a believer Look at the end of verse 5. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Who is God? He is your helper. Verse 11, it ends with this, the help of my countenance and my God. Who is God to you? God is your helper. He is the one who is able to change your countenance. He is able to lift you out of the pit of depression. On your bulletin, there is another quote. This one from Ed Welch. He says, in depression, the new way of living is to believe and act on what God says rather than feel what God says. When there is a debate between what your feelings say and what Scripture says... Scripture wins. Don't live your life trying to just feel what you think God says. What does God really say? You live upon the truth, not what you feel. And so in your depression, I ask you, who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? Are you listening to yourself? Or are you listening to God? 
Are you listening to yourself or are you preaching to yourself? You must speak God's truth to yourself. You must remind yourself of who God is, of what he has done for you in Jesus Christ, and the hope that he gives to you in Christ freely by grace. Let's turn to one final passage, Psalm 23. Psalm 23. As we concentrate on who God is to you as a believer, there is no better place to turn than Psalm 23. And verse 1, perhaps everyone in this room knows this psalm by heart. In the opening verse, notice what David says about God and about his relationship to God. The Lord is my shepherd. It's very personal. He's not just the shepherd. He is my shepherd. And because that is the reality of David, what does he say next? I shall not want. What does that mean? If the Lord is your shepherd, listen carefully, beloved. He is a sufficient shepherd. He is all that you need. This is the testimony of David, a man who is given to suffering and despair. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then verses 2 and 3, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. What does God do for you? He gives you rest. He leads you. He guides you in your life. He does not leave you to yourself. And when you go through the fearful trials of life, you have the full assurance that God, your shepherd, is with you. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will chase me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God is your shepherd, and as your shepherd, he is your comforter. He is the source of your joy. He is always seeking your good every day of your life, even on the worst days of your life. And so, beloved, the greatest reality of the gospel is that because of Christ's sacrifice, you now have God. You are now reconciled to God. You now have God. In other words, the greatest gift God gives to you in the gospel, it is not the forgiveness of sins. It is not. The forgiveness of sins is penultimate. It is not ultimate. God forgives your sins in Christ as a means to a greater end, 
to a greater goal, to a greater aim. God forgives your sins in Christ so that he might give you the greatest gift of all, and that is the gift of himself. In the gospel, God gives himself to you to be your shepherd. So because of the gospel, you now have God. And again, who is God to those who know him? What does the Bible say? What does the sure and certain word of God say? It says that God is your shepherd, that God is your rock, that God is your shield, that God is your fortress, God is your deliverer, God is your refuge, God is your strength, God is your help, God is your joy, God is your life, God is your savior, God is your redeemer, God is your heavenly father who is tender and kind and gracious and full of mercy and compassion, and who loves you with an everlasting love, and he will never let you go. This is who God is to you as a believer in Christ. And so when the dark clouds of despair, they begin to form in your life, and as they lead you in the way of depression, preach these things to yourself. Say to yourself, hope in God. Hope in God. In conclusion, the gospel, it changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. It gives you hope in the darkest hours of life. And it is the gospel that we have the privilege of celebrating this morning in the Lord's Supper. Listen, what is the biggest problem you have in your life? I can tell you because it's my biggest problem. It is sin. And God in Christ, by grace, he has taken away the biggest problem that you have in your life by taking all of your sins and laying them upon Jesus Christ and striking his own son upon the cross with wrath so that he would suffer the punishment that you deserve, satisfy the holy justice of God so that you might have God and thus hope. Let's take a few moments to prepare our hearts for this table. And let me just say one more thing. If you are a believer and you are here this morning, this table is open for you. It is available to all who have repented of their sins and who believe in Jesus Christ alone as Savior and Lord. But it is a time to confess sin. It is a time to prepare our hearts to receive this ordinance rightly. If you are not a believer, we are grateful that you are here this morning. We love you and we thank the Lord for you. But this table is not for you. And so when the plates come to you, if you would please pass them to the next person. Let's now take a few moments and prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper.